0: Sound Design. It's not about wrong or right. As I always say, as long as you
1: know what you're doing, anything goes. Sound Design. <laughs> sound Design Live is produced independently by me, Nathan Lively, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Welcome to Sound Design Live, the home of the world's best online training and sound system tuning that you can do at your own pace from anywhere in the world. I'm Nathan Lively. And today I'm joined by Senior Technical Support and Education Specialist at Meyer Sound, Merlin Van Veen. Merlin, welcome to Sound Design Live. Hey, Nathan. Happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So, I think this is your third time. I feel like I should have some certificate for you or something. A chip? A medal? Yeah, I'm, in a, I'm a repeat offender. <laughs> I think we're going to talk about main subalignments. alignments We're going to be talking about um, maybe a little bit about SMART gaps between subwoofers and questions that people send in on Facebook. But before we do that, Merlin, what sort of monster or ghoul or goblin will you be dressing up as today for Halloween? Oh, okay, so you you, you caught me
0: there. So so here's the thing. <laughs> we, we 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 don't no, I mean, this is going to be, you know, this is going to be this is not going to be what you hoped that it would be. We don't we don't celebrate Halloween in Europe.
1: I know that, but you work for an American company now, so you are forced to celebrate all the same holidays.
0: Okay, well, I I must have missed that paragraph in my contract. Although my daughter... Is um, who's six years old. Um, I think they're discussing in it in school because the other day she came home and she was all excited and she said, "Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna dress up um, like a like a ghost. I'm gonna take a, you know, a piece of sheet and put it over my head and have to cut out the eyes and nose and a mouth because oxygen matters." And uh, <laughs> and uh, so she was all all um, excited about that.
1: Um, Martin, a lot of things have happened to you in the last couple of years. One of them is that you moved to Germany. So I wanted to ask you, even though um, your previous home is only a few hours away from where you live now, have you noticed any differences? What is maybe like one cultural difference between living in Germany and living in the Netherlands? One of the things that I noticed is that German are very hardworking people. Hmm.
0: And 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 it's it's little stuff. It, it's a little bit more rural. It's a little bit more mundane, but not in a bad way. But um, one of the things that I noticed early on is that where we used to live, you could go to a supermarket and they would have all sorts of vegetables which would already been sliced and diced. You know, for for a consumer society where nobody wants to take the time to properly cook a meal. Whereas yeah. in Germany, that's completely uncommon. Okay, you buy lettuce, buy the, by the, you know, you have to cut the lettuce and you have to wash the lettuce, and it's the same with your vegetables. So, it's it's stuff like that. It's a big country by comparison. Netherlands is a small country. You know, we're living three hours from where we used to live, um, which is nothing by American standards.
1: What I'm taking away from what you're saying so far is that people in the Netherlands, uh, the Dutch, are lazy and they like to party. Well, that's one way of thinking about it. (laughs) Uh, No, but it's not as much lazy, but, you know, the the Dutch are also working hard. All right, enough of this fun. Now we got to get serious. Oh, boy. Just kidding. We'll never get serious. I took a quick look, and the most popular, most shared, most engaged article on your website, merlinvenveen.nl, is called... Subwoofer alignment, the foolproof relative absolute method. Um, So in this article, you describe a process of comparing two sources in the near field where they are side-by-side and measurement conditions are favorable. You create an alignment preset, and then you deploy that in the far field with complementary delay to correct for any distance offset caused by moving the speakers apart relative to the listening position. And I love this method because... It really is foolproof, and I like recommending it to people when they feel like, oh, I've tried everything and I can't. Well, try this. This will definitely do it for you. Most of us, I feel like, attend a seminar, and at that seminar, we learn how to do this thing called main subalignment or spectral crossover alignment. And at the seminar, it seems kind of easy. Like, we go through the steps and it's like, oh, okay, you add delay maybe, or you change these things, and, and you get this alignment that you're looking for, and you get summation through the crossover region. Then you get out in the field to do it yourself for the first time. That's the first mistake, I guess, is that you try it for the first time in the field. But you take a measurement and it's really hard to read. It's just kind of a mess. It's really uh, kind of terrifying. There's just all these dots on the screen and, and you don't know what to do. And so I remember so many times getting started and still today I could replicate it. Like it's really hard to get actionable data to complete this process. So I wondered if first you could just talk about maybe um, why it can be so challenging to get actionable data in the field and how you came to develop the relative absolute method. Talking about actionable data, data
0: which informs you uh, which buttons to push to you know, move forward with the calibration process. So why is it so hard? Well, it depends on which frequencies you're asking. Okay, in, in live sound, we typically use horn-loaded loudspeakers, which are well behaved at mid and high frequencies. And as long as we send the sound where it needs to go, which is at the listening plane and not on the plaster, okay, we do not energize the room and upon impact, the room doesn't throw that energy back at us, which means that we get favorable measurements, measurements that have a high degree of direct sound, over over indirect sound, which means that whatever phase trace or magnitude response that we end up looking um, at will have, you know, is very likely to be your loudspeaker is very likely to be your prime suspect. However. Um, We also know that as we go down in frequency, loudspeakers uh, tend to become omnidirectional. And the moment that happens, these loudspeakers effectively become Leslie boxes. You can rotate them all day long and it will make little or no difference in terms of... Um, of how they excite the room how they energize the room imagine that you have an incandescent lighting source in the middle of a room well then you light up the whole room and and the same is true at low frequencies for most loudspeakers even large scale uh, line array elements or subwoofers for that matter and because of that you energize the room and the room upon impact doesn't absorb that energy because we know that it's notoriously hard to absorb long wavelengths, um, either by friction or by diametrotic action, membrane absorbers and such. And the boundaries that constitute a room are typically rigid, stiff, and large enough to reflect the wavelengths of interest. So the room is going to throw that energy back at you. We also refer to it as, as, as room gain, and that wreaks havoc on the magnitude response as well as the phase trace, and it's where I like to say the phase trace goes—you know—goes fubar, which is something that you can try to look up in Webster's dictionary, and <laughs> and that means that you get all these serrations, you get this jaggedness in the phase trace, which actually might lead you to believe that you have accumulated uh, additional wraparounds in your phase trace. Um, and I think that's a misconception. And, and people try to resort to smoothing to, to remedy that. But you know, if you have really unfavorable uh, conditions, even using a gratuitous amount of smoothing typically will not rid you of those, um, of those fake wraparounds. Um, due to these strong room reflections. So if you now want to use that kind of data to face align a main speaker to subwoofer, for all you know, you end up time aligning your main speaker to a reflection or you know whatever. Um, so, so that's the deal with actionable data. Um, the other thing that was um, is, is something that never ceases to amaze me which used to apply to me as well, also uh, at one point in time. But but here's the thing. If you ask a violin player to describe his instrument, you're gonna get an eight-hour lecture, okay? Because he knows his instrument intimately. He can tell you about the smell of the instrument, he can tell you about the texture of the surface, the, the, the finish of the surface, he can tell you what the instrument does, when temperature changes, how it goes out of tune or in tune, he knows everything there's to know about that instrument because it's 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 cash cow. It's how he makes his money. Um, ask an engineer um, to describe the phase response of the loudspeakers that he regularly works with, and chances are you will hear crickets. So this is the other th- other part of the equation, which is like how how are you gonna identify whether the phase trace you see on your screen is your loudspeaker and not a room reflection when you do not know what the phase response is supposed to look like out of the gate. So that's the other part of the equation and and, and that makes you know conducting these measurements at a typical location like front of house makes it at times very challenging, especially if you don't know what to look for. That's what you're fighting with. And I've been trying to do that um, for the better part of my career, only to find out that the time it takes to find a measurement position in the vicinity of front of house, which leaves you with a degree of actionable data, can be so time-consuming that you're you know, neglecting, um, in my opinion, um, more important issues that d- deserve our attention. Because now we have the main to subwoofers properly aligned, sounds like godzilla is walking through your living room but it's still unintelligible because we we forgot to take care of those other eight octaves that led to the the whole absolute relative approach like there has to be a way which is less time consuming and and that led to the two-step process known as the absolute relative approach
1: you noticed these two big problems that were happening over and over again which were if you measure in the far field a lot of times you're not measuring direct sound anymore. You're, you're, uh, potentially measuring things that are misleading. And also if you're measuring something that you've never measured before and you don't know what to expect, then uh, you don't really know what you're looking for anyway. So you're really fighting this uphill battle. And so at some point you, I guess you measured something in the near field and you realize, Hey, when you measured in the near field and you have really great signal to noise ratio and you have favorable measurement conditions, aha, now, uh, a lot of those problems go away, and at least you can see the relationship between two things with um, a lot more um, confidence. I guess. Yeah, is that what happened?
0: Yeah, it's like like you know what Bob likes to call "meet the speaker." You know, go up to the loudspeaker and properly introduce yourself. I call it the Polaroid. Make the snapshot in the near field, typically anywhere from one to two meters distance, where, like you said, you have a high signal to noise and a high direct reverberant ratio. And this will get your near anechoic, you know, near anechoic data. Of course you have to respect the minimum distance, especially if you have loudspeakers that uh, consists of multiple transducers, you know, it has to become a single coherent source. These have to merge, these have to fuse together. And if you come too close, you either measure only a direct radiator or only a horn. But typically anywhere from one to two meters for, 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 uh, for conventional loudspeaker dimensions uh, gets the job done. And now at least you have a baseline reference. Like this is what this loudspeaker is approximately supposed to look like when there is little or no room interaction.
1: All right. Well, I definitely recommend people um, check out that article and um, it's going to really inspire you to want, especially if you work somewhere like a warehouse or a sound company where you have access to this stuff, it's going to inspire you to want to go and measure everything at the warehouse so that then you kind of have um, potentially presets um, or like a library of measurements um, to compare... Once you actually get into the field, yeah. And, so,
0: and if you're a sensible loudspeaker uh, manufacturer, you would have already taken care of this. I mean, uh, imagine that you have uh, a line array system that that comes with subwoofers, which can be flown in line as well then, you know, guess what? Your, your loudspeaker grills are going to end up living, you know, in the same plane or close to the same plane. Uh, so, you know, it would be sensible to make sure that the system is already properly phase aligned when the grills are coplanar, when they live in the same plane.
1: So Merlin, you mentioned smoothing, and we've already said a couple of things about using audio analyzers, so let's jump to talking about that a little bit. I thought maybe it would be helpful, or maybe just fun, for you to say some of the default settings that you start out with on your audio analyzer in terms of, like, graph limits, smoothing, uh, averaging. It depends. Not all analyzers have...
0: Dedicated smoothing settings for magnitude and phase uh, separately. So, you know, in generic terms, I always start out in what I've come to call a sharp focus. Okay, I don't want any gel on the lens. I don't want any. Uh, I don't want any. Um, I don't want blur out of the gate. So, I'll typically start at 148 octave resolution. That's that's my default setting. And depending on how hostile the environment is, which would have to be substantial, I might be tempted to go to 124th and I really draw the line around 112th. Okay? Because ripple, which is the, you know, if you think about a comb filter, it's an alternating pattern of peaks and cancels. okay? Serrations, uh, serrations, jaggedness, um, in the in the in the in the responses, I don't consider ripple a bad thing Okay, it's arguably the most important metric that there is in, in, in interpreting and analyzing because it gives you an understanding of what is the degree of interaction You know, what is my direct to reverberant ratio? Because if it's small, you will have lots of ripple. Uh, Whereas if you have oodles of direct sound and little or no room, then you will have little or no ripple uh, at all. So, ripple for me is a super helpful metric. Uh, It's become a powerful ally. And, you know, if you resort to a lot of smoothing, you lose it. Uh, And, you know, you might get data which leads you to believe. Uh, that you're in an anechoic room when your ears inform you that when you clap your hands that you're, you know, in a room that is anything but anechoic. And that's not eye-to-ear training. Now, we're not measuring what we're clearly hearing and vice versa. So I'm known to be strongly opposed to smoothing because um, it's about what I always say. It's about ripple is not a dirty word. And you attend a class, and that class hopefully will learn you to feel comfortable with how these traces look. Because guess what? That's exactly what they're supposed to look like.
1: Refrain from using too much video post-processing. <laughs> <laughs> Sharp focus on the smoothing. What about graph limits for um, things like magnitude, phase? Okay, so you're looking at the guy that was capable of using
0: as much as 10 parametric EQs to flatten out the response of a single loudspeaker, Okay. To the, point that That's you, yeah, to the point that you could, pros- you know, we call it to the point, <laughs> To the point that you can almost ice-skate on it um, uh, because it's so darn flat. Um, and, and this is the thing. I stepped away from default settings like plus minus 18 decibels with 3 dB divisions. I stepped away from that, uh, I think by now about seven, seven years ago. Uh, I don't want that much granularity because if I have that much granularity, then I set the table for micromanaging. Okay, now you're gonna now you're gonna split hairs over every deviation, every bump. Um, so my default setting for over five years is now you know plus minus 30 decibels with 10 dB divisions. Okay, and that really allows you to catch the big offenders. Okay, the guys that make a difference without setting the table for micromanagement. And that's been working really, really well for myself. Um, not to mention that having 30 dB, um, plus minus 30 dB, or in general having 10 dB divisions, also allows you, you know, on some analyzers, to go for five dB divisions. And there is, there is, there is a world where five dB divisions come in handy. Okay. Whereas if you have an 18 dB plus minus 18 dB scale, your options are somewhat limited because with 18 decibels, it's either 3 times 6 or 6 times 3 decibel divisions. Uh, forget 5 dB divisions, forget 10 dB divisions. Whereas with the 30 dB scale, okay, all options are still on the table. I can do 5 times 6, I can do 6 times 5, I can do 3 times 10. Okay, And all the, all the common divisions that you might want, which is your 6 decibels, your 5, and your 10 decibels, are still in the realm of possibilities.
1: And what about averaging and time window? Well, time windows are taken care
0: of on the analyzers that I work with. Um, all analyzers that I've worked with use multiple time records or time windows. I mix those up indiscriminately. Or FFT sizes. Um, All the analyzers that I work with have multiple of those, Um, so you know they've they've been predetermined for good reasons, and I've never I've never had a reason to revisit those or um, uh, set any additional windows. Okay, some people like to uh, window out late arriving energy reflections. Guess what? It reduces the ripple. You're basically applying smoothing in the timing domain, and now you're back at you know looking at near-echoic room, near-anechoic data, while you're in a concert hall, you know, with three seconds of of reverberation. So, again, it's not about wrong or right. As I always say, as long as you know what you're doing, anything goes. It's just, if you want your analyzer to become an ally, then the analyzer should render the sound as crappy as it sounds, okay? And not paint you a picture which you expect to see in a data sheet, Okay, it's it's that's that's the whole eye to ear training, um, part of it, because this is the thing. If there is ambiguity, if there is a difference of opinion, if my ears cannot relate to what I measure, or if I cannot measure what I clearly hear, what do you think? Do we give preference? Okay. Every sensible person will favor the ears over any software program, okay and 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 then we end up closing our computers and saying something like, "We don't need no stinking analyzers. We've done this. <laughs> you know we've always done this with our ears. And why would you ever want to change that? Because then we lose faith in the measurement platform. it doesn't doesn't validate what we can clearly hear. And, and that's, that's, you know, there's no good reason for that. Deanna analyst has become a powerful ally of mine and, you know,
1: it's been instrumental in my career. So. Yeah, it's like we're trying to establish points of reference, not points of conflict.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Um, and just the last thing for averaging, I think um, we can choose between usually like polar and complex, right?
0: Yeah, and I choose complex, okay? Uh, it's an acquired taste. Uh, not everybody likes it, but you know, I I want to see the data in all its ugliness. I don't want, uh, you know, I, you know. And today you can even see them simultaneously, okay? If you want to. So and, and and there's there's merit to looking at two measurements using the same microphone while looking at one average um, used um, RMS and the other one uses complex or. Uh, vectorial averaging, and as for the number of averages, well, that's ultimately that's ultimately a matter of stability, that's a matter of coherence. Um, again, out of the gate, I might start with uh, sixteen um, FIFO, first in first out, maybe one second, depending on the analyzer, um, because you know, once there is no appreciable movement in that trace anymore, which is ultimately a function of the number. Of averages that you use you know what are you waiting for okay sooner or later that trace goes steady state you know and and you know the only justifiable improvement that you could be looking for is is an increase in coherence but you know it, once that picture goes steady state you might as well store your trace and turn off the analyzer you know why have that generator run any longer than is strictly necessary you know, then it becomes annoying.
1: Merlin, says is great. What what I'm taking away from listening to you, just sort of go through these settings, is I'm realizing that you want maximum information as quickly as possible, and I think that makes a lot of sense because you're trying to get the job done quickly and also um, make the best decisions. You know, with all the information, so the more smoothing you add, for example, kind of the less information you have, and the harder it might be to make a decision. And um, the less you can sort of see the ripple, the less information you have. You know, while this might be a struggle for someone starting out, and and therefore you can sort of sympathize with the need to have like less information. Like, ah, it's too much. It's hurting my eyes. It's terrifying. Um, it makes a lot of sense that you would want to get to this place that you're at where you want all of the information and as quickly as possible, you know, let me do my job and make the right decisions.
0: Well, Bob had a nice metaphor the other day and he said, if you would have an electron microscope and look at a razor blade, would you want to use that razor blade to shave yourself? Because here's the thing, if you use an electron microscope and look at the edge of a razor blade, it looks like the Grand Canyon, okay, and you would go, I'm never going to put that on my face, because you have too much granularity, you have too much detail, Uh, even though we know that the razor blade is razor sharp, okay, and and that's what what we're talking about. I use smoothing like a radiologist uses contrast and brightness constantly adjusting contrast and brightness until he feels absolute confident about the diagnosis and how to interpret that x-ray photo okay but if you start with too much smoothing you know then, then how are you going to see a hair fracture okay and determine whether it needs a cast or not
1: A couple of years ago, you published a series of articles on your site called Mind the Gap. And this was really interesting. You went out to um, an Air Force base, I think? Yep. Former Air Force base. This was, I think you mentioned one of the first times anyone had done these kind of um, measurements of these subwoofer arrays where you could measure from far away without obstructions like walls. And you got a lot of information. One of the things that you took away from this research that you did is that adding some amount of gap between these speakers, between these enclosures, may improve their performance uh, for these directional subwoofer arrays. And then you kind of ended the article by saying, um, the challenge becomes to determine the minimum required gap size for improved rejection without a noticeable increase in lobing. So I'm wondering, in the two years since you published that, have you tried this out more in the field? Do you have any updates for us? And can you talk any more about this minimum gap size?
0: Other than that, experimentally, I've determined that two fists, which is what I've been advertising ever since, two fists between the walls of a of a of a moderate sized you know subwoofer between the um, the outer walls of the cabinet, um, two fists typically gets the job done. Because this is the thing, you know, when we talk about subwoofers. The, the enclosures become relatively big in relationship to the wavelengths that they're reproducing. Okay? So if you start stacking a you know a bunch of book closets or Mini Coopers side by side, then these are relatively speaking large objects. So if you build a wall out of, of subwoofers, you're basically, you know, only leave a handful of options available for the sound to wrap around its own enclosures okay so it's it's almost some it's, it's almost self-impeding it's self-obstructing there's only a limited number of ways for the sound to flow freely around the wall of, of loudspeakers that you just built whereas if you leave these small air gaps between adjacent enclosures suddenly you're opening up you know all these shortcuts for the sound to freely flow around and between adjacent enclosures and that, makes, uh, and that improves the performance in, in more than one way, as I learned during these experiments at that former Air Force base. Without, you know, uh, with, and it, it doesn't come at a performance hit of any sorts, as long as the distance, the gaps remain moderately sized, like I said, to a fist. You, know, you, you get to reap the benefits without introducing all sorts of, of nastinesses. The the sole concern is that, you know, since everyone is a member of the SPL Preservation Society, <laughs> which is the society in favor of preserving sound pressure level, uh, is 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 intuitively strongly opposed to breaking up the combined area of that, you know, of that of that collective baffle because they take a performance hit you know, in terms of of of, of SBL, um, and but as long as we're clinging on, you know, to being a member of the SBL Preservation Society, okay, we'll never we're never going to be able to
1: appreciate the, the benefits that these little tricks have. Merlin, you uh, talk a lot about M noise. I attended uh, one of your talks about it at Infocom. I found it really interesting. Um, so I know there's a lot you can say about it. But I think a lot of people still don't know what it is or what it's for. And I think they just maybe saw some videos or some posts online about it. I still sometimes have people come up to me and say, what is M-Noise and should I put it in my audio analyzer? Is this the new signal generator that I must use for better performance?
0: That's a common question. So let's get the obvious out of the way first, okay? It makes no difference whether I use M-Noise, Pink Noise white noise, brown noise, or any of the other noises you and I can think of, it makes no difference which signal we use when it comes to obtaining the transfer function. SIM is an abbreviation, and most people don't even know what the abbreviation stands for because it stands for source independent measurement. Okay, I could even use the the mix coming out of a console during a a, a live concert and use it as an excitation signal to obtain a transfer function. We also know that, you know, the the disadvantages are that in music, not all notes are played at the same time. Not all frequencies might be present in that signal. So, you know, if there's no kick drum or no bass guitar, then there's probably very little to measure down to 40 Hz because you're not exciting the system at those frequencies. M-Noise does not change my calibration practice. Um, this is where you see that, you know, people. Ca- this is a common problem. People mix up voicing and calibration. Calibration is the process of making it sound the same everywhere, including front of house, whereas voicing is the process of, okay, how should the sound system ultimately sound? And because M noise sounds different from pink noise, just like pink noise sounds different from white noise, people uh, are inclined to believe that if the excitation signal sounds different, then surely that must somehow affect the voicing of the sound system. Which is cross-pollination between two disciplines that I feel should remain, you know, in separate corners. Okay. Now, what is the value proposition of ab noise? Well, it's it's you know, in short, you know, it's it's a better approximation of music, un- unless you intend to listen to Pink Noise concerts for the rest of your life, okay, <laughs> because I think it's safe to say that Pink Noise is not music currently there is no governing body there's no overlooking administration or organization or whatever that is monitoring you know the data that ends up in data sheets okay which basically means that as a manufacturer you're free to publish whatever value you want okay there's not going to be an organization that will slap you on the wrist if you are you know inflating numbers or somewhat obfuscating numbers imagine that you hire a cargo plane And you take a car onto the cargo plane and now you go to cruising altitude, you open the cargo bay, you drop the car out of the plane. Now that car sooner or later is going to reach terminal velocity. Now you put a guy on the floor and he has a laser pistol or she has a laser pistol. And she points at the dropping car and she measures the speed of the car as it's dropping out of the plane. And sooner or later, that will read, you know, terminal velocity, whatever that may be. Now, now you have the data to back up your claim. You're not lying, except that I think it's safe to say that that's not how cars are intended to be used. Fastest okay. car in the world. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and you have a measurement. So now you get to now you get to say this car, you know, does terminal velocity. But you know, what's what is what is the what is the value proposition of such a number? when cars are typically used on asphalt, you know, on roads, where they're very likely to uh, not reach terminal velocity. It's a very interesting time, but it, it looks promising. Um, there is now an official AES committee. It's um, it's a task group which uh, whose, whose designation is SC, as in Standards Committee, SC0403-A. And that is now a task group that has... Uh, 65 members from throughout the industry that is now in the process of, process of investigating whether uh, there is merit in adopting M-noise and, and the procedure that comes with it that is equally important, if not more important, both the test signal and the procedure, whether there is um, merit for the industry at large in adopting that and uh, turning it into a, an AS standard. It's too soon to tell, but um, a lot of work still needs to happen, but if this would happen, it's not Im- unimaginable that we might end up, maybe for the first time, if not f- for the first time, in uh, in an industry where we could, you know, compare apples to apples on data sheets and oranges to oranges. So it's it's exciting. Um, exciting could level planning. the playing field. Yeah. yeah, yeah,
1: Because this is the thing: if a loudspeaker
0: says, "Okay, you know, arbitrary number, 130 dB at one meter distance." Well, that triple-digit figure does not tell you how that loudspeaker sounds by the time you reach that level. Okay, what does that tell me? Will it it, will it still sound acceptable, or does it sound in a
1: way which wants you, you which makes you want to leave the room? Cool. So Merlin, if people want to learn this procedure and download mNoise, what is the URL for that? That would be m-noise, m or
0: hyphen, I don't, I always mix those up, m-noise.org,
1: So Merlin, a bunch of crazy people from Facebook sent me questions, and I would love to ask you those now. Okay. The first crazy person is Dave Gammon, and he wants to know, if you had hair, would you have a mullet or a ponytail? I at one point in my life I had both. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I used to have uh, brown curly hair, but then you know the the the, the receding divider came into action, and you know, that's that's you know, that's when I shaved it off. The garage door
1: opened up. The garage door opened up, and there was a brief period <laughs> of mourning, and then <laughs> uh, and then I made my peace with it. You know? Okay, so swapnil walk of the car asks, accessible software for all, which provides simulation of line array and subwoofer configuration. So I think the question is being asked here, which is a question that everyone has when they first start getting into um, design, modeling software, prediction software is, okay, what's the one piece of software I need to learn so that I can test anything, so that I can have a model that has EAW and Myers sound and JBL, and I can just put anything that I want in there, look at a prediction in three dimensions, and and basically do anything. And the answer is always you can't, that doesn't exist. And if you want to if you want to do modeling with Meyer sound, you need to use MapXT. If you want to do modeling with acoustics, you need to use what is it sound vision is there any change to that answer i think is the question here is there a piece of software to do everything
0: well sure but they are typically not you know um they come with at a price tag okay but if we look at the software which is being made by manufacturers you know which typically tend to be free then of course they're all you know Confined to their own product range for evident reasons. Um, that being said, you know, and I know that you know, in my current position, this sounds so- sounds somewhat biased. But you know, you've attended my seminars before I joined Meyersound. Sound. You you know, I've said this for some while, is that you know, we we in the field we use analyzers which show you magnitude responses, phase responses, and impulse responses. Those are the three metrics. You know, the the. the that, that guide us during the calibration process. But how many of the applications that are out there show all those three metrics as well? Okay, Now, all of them show you a magnitude response, sure. Uh, but which ones show you uh, impulse responses? Which ones show you phase responses? So, you know, uh, people that are familiar with my work before I joined Myersound have heard me say this on more than one occasion. If you have no objection... ...looking at predictions using Meyer Sound loudspeakers, then MAP is still your go-to guy. Because MAP will show you all these uh, metrics that you ultimately end up looking at in the field. Okay, so if you want to practice main speaker to subwoofer alignment, well, people say, I can't practice that because I don't have access to the hardware. There's no opportunity to gain access to the hardware. Therefore, I can't practice this. And I'm not convinced. I think you can practice this until you see blue in the face um, because there is, you know, there are program, There is a program such as MAP that allows you to look at actual loudspeaker data and allows you to practice this. You know, correct me if I'm wrong. I yet have to discover... Another program that, is, that doesn't cost the world. Another program that gives you those same metrics. All of them and not just a limited subset. So I, I understand that, you know, it sounds maybe a little bit like a sales pitch. But, you know, this is, this is my genuine, you know, heartfelt uh, opinion. In the absence of a viable alternative, you know I think MAP is still the ultimate sandbox, the ultimate playground to experiment with these things while looking at data that
1: you're going to run into in the real world. Okard Marais says, if you could only teach a single lesson about sound system optimization for your entire life, what would it be? So I guess another way of saying this is, is there like one most important thing that you want to share?
0: Basically, this this, this goes back to that quote that you shared some some while ago by Vince Lombardi. You know, it's all about the fundamentals. Excellence is achieved by mastery of fundamentals. There's a little bit extra text which says, it's so easy to overestimate the importance of one critical event or one big break while simultaneously forgetting about the hidden power that small choices can have. Without the fundamentals, the details are useless. With the fundamentals, tiny gains can add up to something very significant. And this is something that I learned the hard way, especially as a mixing guy. There, there is no easy win. There is no, there is no magic bullet, no holy grail. Like, if I do this procedure or this routine, then you know, it will lend me the next job and every job after that one. No, I've learned the hard way that you know, 10 1dB steps also add you know, to uh, a 10dB increment. You know, but you have to do it in small steps so know your fundamentals okay that's 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 something that's been at the top of my mission statement know your fundamentals know your hertz's know your milliseconds know your face because guess what they're only going to haunt you for the rest of your life in ten thousand different ways armed with that knowledge you know everything falls into place nice. buy the book okay <laughs> yeah you know unless you can think of a better book but you know when it comes to designing sound systems and calibrating sound systems, I yet have to hear of another book which talks so elaborately about the fundamentals. Correct me if I'm wrong. And in this case, you're
1: not talking about Vince Lombardi, you're talking about Bob McCarthy.
0: Yeah, Bob McCarthy's book, Sound Sign and Mm -hmm. Optimization, which is now also available in Spanish as as an e-book. Third edition. Exactly. And it's, you know, it's on offer. It has, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a December discount last time I checked. So.
1: Oh, cool. Thurston Buns says, did having your own education site and writing articles help you get the job at Meyer Sound? How did it change your career? So I'm interested in this as well, this career question. Um, A lot of people don't know. I started Sound Design Life podcast to get more work as a theatrical sound designer, and that never happened but it did help me eventually create an education business, which I love having now. So I guess there's, the question is, did it help you get the job? And did you sort of see that coming years in advance? And you thought like, oh, I'll make this site and do these articles and that'll help me get a job at a manufacturer.
0: In hindsight, you might be inclined to think that there was some, some sort of master plan involved. Well, guess what? Um, there wasn't you know when i made my website which was one and a half year process because at the time i couldn't afford of having somebody else do it for me and this is this is this is pre-wordpress okay wordpress at the time was was still you know emerging um so i ended up doing it in joomla or joomla you know and i had to learn that first so you know it took one and a half years to make my own website and um, it was it was uh, it was the birthday gift that i gave myself okay <laughs> but you know before i could make the website i first had to learn how to make a freaking template i made these calculators these microsoft excel spreadsheets and they served me well and you know there was an interest in that so i had i needed a vessel i needed a repository to share those spreadsheets so that's that's basically the excuse for the website and you know, one thing led to another. Um, you know, I might write an article or, or or a blog or whatever you want. So I ended up doing that as well, and that's how I slowly gained traction. And, and you know, and my generation, because I'm not I'm not known to be very active on Instagram. I'm I'm still of the of the Facebook generation, and I can only say that Facebook has been instrumental. In, in the development of my career it allowed me to get in touch with people around the globe uh, that you would normally never ever speak okay And I'm known uh, to give everything away for free maybe I'm naive or whatever you know, it's all paid forward. Um, so'm you know I, I, I created a tremendous amount of goodwill or so I'd like to think uh, because I never charged a dime. So sure, the the website, the social media, has been instrumental in accelerating my career, gaining traction. Whether it got me the job, uh, I don't know, and I'll probably never know, um, because you know the powers that be. You know, I don't know whether. To, and frankly, you know, it really, I, it really doesn't interest me that much. Whether it was the website or the social media, or you know, I'm happy to be there. You know, and opportunity to get to work with some ridiculously clever people <laughs> um i remember stepping into the front office for the first time and then i saw that you know they have this trophy wall that's covered in patents and the first thing that crossed my mind was i know absolutely nothing <laughs> You know, When you run into your own limitations, in my case, that has always been a motivation to start digging. Like, why doesn't this behave the way I thought it would? Why does this unravel in a completely different way than I envisioned it? That's never been satisfactory to me, satisfying to me. So I've always used that as an incentive to start studying, which is surely not the way of least resistance. You know, that, that's the driving force. Why isn't this going the way I thought it would go? Why can't I not exercise control over this? Now, control is illusion, but, you know, exercise some favorable control. Why can I not make this work in my advantage? And that's always been the incentive, you know, always the drive. And, and still, still, every day, you know, you, you, I, at least I, every day, I try to learn something new.
1: One of the things I love about working in pro audio is I think it has a really nice um, balance of, scholarly activities I'll say and practical activities. So, and you're just kind of forced to do it because you have to use a new piece of equipment tomorrow that you've never used. All of a sudden you you find out about it and you're like, "Oh shit, I got to learn how to use that." So you do everything you can, let's just say the day before cuz you just found out about it. And then you get to actually go out and put your hands on it and and do the thing the next day and it's a very satisfying sort of educational cycle to be continually challenge and i know some people complain that like oh things like change too quickly or now i have to know all these consoles and these digital consoles all have different interfaces and it's so annoying that's one way to look at it or it's sort of like this fun process where you get to like learn new stuff every time and you're f- it's never boring for sure
0: yeah but but unlike mixing at the point where i'm now you know calibrating sound systems designing sound pieces for me is a very soothing process because you know it's, you know, with enough practice, it, it, becomes, uh, it becomes predictable, you know, it becomes comfortably predictable, you know, within, within reason. And I find it a very soothing process. It's, you know, a very reaffirming, very, very, very um, validating process. Whereas we've, you know, if mixing, you can, you know, with mixing, we all notice the stars can be aligned, everything can be aligned, and it's no guarantee that you will have a successful show. Okay? You can have the best sounding system in the world. You can have the best sounding mixing console. There can be literally no excuse for you to, to screw it up. And yet it's not going to guarantee a successful show. And that's always that random element of chance or whatever uh, you, you want to call it. And I've always struggled with that. Mm-hmm. Like there is, there's just no success formula for mixing a show successfully. Even if all the odds are in your favor, it still doesn't mean that you will you know, score one for the home team. And uh, I've found that difficult. Um, whereas with calibrating and designing sound system, that random element of chance uh, with enough practice is substantially less.
1: What is your reaction to the new Star Wars trailer? It's an instinct. Is it going to be a great movie or the greatest movie? Uh, I, I don't know. So, <laughs> so, so
0: this is how I gauge Star Wars movie. There's, there's, I, have a, I have a vivid memory of seeing the first Star Wars movie when it was about eight years old. And that resonated with me in a very specific way. Okay. And that's, that's the pressure gauge. Okay. That's how I rate Star Wars movies. I have not experienced that same resonance, um, with the newer movies. Um, the only recent movie that um, resonated with me the same way the original movies did when I was eight years old was uh Rogue Squadron and the newer movies, I will watch them. I watch anything Star Wars. Okay. Uh, that that much is clear it's just i have the utmost respect for any director that is correct courageous enough to do anything in the star wars franchise because the expectations are through the roof you know and you can basically only do it wrong it's also clear to me that disney wants to return on their investment so they're making sure that star wars is there to stay and they want to reconnect you know they want to connect with next generation newer audiences so that you know that that results in some stuff which I don't consider necessary. I don't know whether that belongs in Star Wars parlance but I understand what it is that they're trying to do uh, you're talking won- about the- space horses no not space horses my my my, <laughs> fa- my 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 favorite example is in the eighth movie it's like okay you have Poe Dameron who is hovering in his x-wing in front of this giant star destroyer and he's looking for general hawks Okay, can General Hux come on the line? This
1: is Commander Poe Dameron of the Republic fleet. I have an urgent communique for General Hux. Patch him through.
0: And General Hux says, yes, this is is me. And he says, no, I'm looking for General Hux. Well, that's who you're talking to. No, I'm looking for General Hux. Hi, I'm holding for General Hux. This is Hux. You and your friends
1: are doomed. We will wipe your filth from the galaxy. Okay, I'll hold.
0: Hello And this goes back and forth about five or eight or ten times. And in a Marvel movie, that would have not been misplaced. In a Marvel movie, uh, you would expect to see that kind of humor uh, where I enjoy it a great deal. But it's that kind of stuff that you know that you see in the new Star Wars movies. And it's just, I don't know. It doesn't make me feel like an eight year old boy. but I, 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 I get why they do it. I get why they do it. you know, it completely makes sense. Uh, that being said, I will watch them several times and, you know, I will still enjoy them a great deal, but it's safe to say that they differ, from the, uh, they differ from the original, you know, episodes four, five, and six.
1: Merlin, where is the best place for
0: people to follow your work? When you're talking about the articles that I write, you know, then my website, Merlinvanveen.nl, would be the place to go. If you're talking about my work within Sound, then you should go to meyersound.com. Sound design
1: my next workshop on december 15th and 16th is called getting work done with an audio analyzer it's an intermediate level workshop that will teach you how to eq quickly and accurately time align fill speakers and phase line main and sub speakers i'm offering it at three different times that sunday and monday so hopefully you should be able to find the time that works for you i'll put a link to the enrollment page on the show notes for this podcast and on my facebook page I want to thank Derek Bryant for the music in today's episode. If you want to find more of his music, look for a link on the show notes for this podcast. Sound Design Live is supported by Learn Stage Lighting, Scott, Pedro, Ryan, Bob, Martin, Roadie Free Radio, Joel, Ellis, Jim, Sinqui, Terry, Nicholas, Kuba, Chris, DC Sound Op, and Dave. You can start supporting Sound Design Live for as little as $1 today over at patreon.com slash sounddesignlive.